In this episode, I'm joined by Lauren De La Cruz, or you may know her as Innate Functional Nutrition on Instagram, to share knowledge on how to prepare your body for conception. Lauren is a functional nutritional therapy practitioner, root cause protocol consultant, and functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner that specializes in preconception nutrition. Her mission is to empower women with the tools and the knowledge they need to regulate their cycles, balance their hormones, heal their metabolism, optimize their fertility, and have a thriving pregnancy. So the goal today is to talk about that preconception time. I feel like as soon as you get into preconception, pregnancy, prenatal nutrition, it starts to get confusing. I get a lot of questions around this stuff, like what do I follow? What's correct? What's not? What's up to date based on research? So the goal is to just kind of go through what's the most essential for people to dig into during this time when they're preparing to conceive and then hopefully like dispel a few myths because I feel like we get really bad advice on conception from doctors. So thank you for being here with me, Lauren. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Amanda. I'm super excited to be here. So if you guys don't follow Lauren on Instagram, please do. I feel like I always look at your posts. Like it's, and you know, when you look at someone's stuff all the time, it comes up on the top of your feed. It's like always really good quality content. And like you even share resources and stuff like above and beyond for sure. So if you're interested in this stuff or even just like hormone health, because I personally feel like fertility is just health, you know, whether you want to have a baby or not. But I'm really curious to know, like, how did you get interested so specifically in conception? And then just like a little bit more about your own health story. Yeah, thanks so much. So yeah, where to begin? I got interested in conception because I was previously working with women, helping them with metabolic issues, just feeling better in general, whether it was coming off the birth control pill or, you know, working through menopausal symptoms. So the range was really large and wide. More and more, I I started to get into my own preconception journey. And um, that itself has been very, very interesting and fun. But the more I did research on, okay, fertility, pregnancy, and how all these things connect, the more I realized that there was a hugely missed opportunity to not only impact our children's health, you know, in the womb, but also impact their children's health and their children's children's health. But also this aspect of, you know, reducing complications during pregnancy and increasing our ability to recover postpartum. So, and that all starts with preconception prep, uh, because the moment you you have a conception, it's it's all starts, all the dominoes start to fall into place. And so the way that we can affect that the best is preconception prep. So I I just view it as a really powerful, not only a beautiful time, but also a really powerful way to influence our health and our children's health in a much deeper way. And with your own kind of health journey, I feel like it's kind of natural. Like as we get to those phases in your life, you're like, this is, it's all you're researching and like reading about and thinking about. I think a lot of women kind of naturally go through that, whether they work in the field or not. Did you find that there was anything specifically that you were curious about that with your own health that like you wanted to prevent within your kids? Yeah. So that's a great question. And, you know, I I think definitely there's one of the reasons I sort of pursued this after doing so much research and I continue to do it is because I found that there was a lack of resources for women for this time period. There's only like, you know, when you research, there's a lot of pregnancy stuff, 
maybe a little postpartum stuff, but really nothing on preconception. So definitely self-motivated to sort of put some stops or, you know, change the outcomes of my future children's health. My mother personally, she dealt with preeclampsia twice in two out of three children. And so that is really important to me. Uh, I do have a family history of diabetes on both sides of my family. And there's another, I guess, personally, I, I had also grown up having to take steroid inhalers for asthma as well. And so that is also really important to me to not, you know, as much as possible, of course, you can't control every single aspect of <laughs> your future children's health. There are so many different inputs, but it's really all about putting your best foot forward to try to mitigate that as much as possible. I myself have been working on these, a preconception with these things in mind. And it's been, it's so far, it's been going well. I mean, I've been able to heal my asthma, which has been awesome. And I no longer have to take daily steroid inhalers, <laughs> which is excellent. So I, I actually grew up with asthma. I, as soon as I was born, I wasn't breathing and I always had breathing issues ever since. I used nebulizers, like the machines. Oh my gosh. I hated doing those. Oh, it was like torture. And so I totally, I can definitely relate to that. Were you using inhalers up until somewhat recently, or is that something you resolved a while ago? I guess it depends on what you you know, say recently is, uh, I resolved my asthma about four to five years ago. And that was its own journey, because that's really how I fell into nutrition in general. I had a really terrible experience on the birth control pill. I initially started taking it for adult acne that I developed after being on a vegan diet. So just hindsight 2020, I was very malnourished. And my body was just telling me I needed more animal foods, animal products, specifically vitamin A, retinol. <laughs> you know, I was desperate though. And no one, you know, back then, and I'm not that old, but back then <laughs> we didn't have resources available to us instantly. No, There were no blogs on this. Um, and that was the length of online information available. And my doctors had no idea what to do. They were just like, people get adult acne. Sorry. Uh, so <laughs> I was offered the birth control pill and um, I definitely was like, yes, let's do this. Uh, all my other friends were on it. So I was like, this can't be that bad. So I dealt with a string of, you know, various issues. I had pre-diabetes. I uh, was constantly cold. Oh gosh, what else? Oh, I had candida. I also developed an autoimmune skin condition called lichen planus, which is really just not fun. <laughs> um, so, you know, after, after that, these things were progressive, like it just got progressively worse and worse. And then my acne started coming back. And I was like, why am I even on this thing? And so I, I started doing research on how to come off. And that is when I realized how it actually works. And so I was like, are you kidding me? I had no idea it worked this way. My, the brain, the connection between my brain and my ovaries have been shut off. Um, I haven't been producing progesterone, which is, you know, pro-thyroid. Like, no wonder I feel bloated all the time. No wonder my gut is so messed up. And so I went to my doctors with, for some guidance, you know, hopefully I was on it for eight years, <sighs> fun eight years, but, um, I, I went to my doctors try, hoping that they would have some guidance for me. So they didn't. They were just like, you can stop it at any time and, you know, do you. Um, but then I did. And then 
my hair started falling out and my skin, my acne came back tenfold. I was like, what is going on? So I went back to them. None of them had any idea about how to help me. Uh, They were just completely clueless. And they offered me getting back on the pill or getting on a different pill, which is called spernolactone. So those were the two options I got or just waited out. And I was like, there has to be something else I can do here that doesn't involve medication, but that doesn't involve doing nothing. So I started researching and that's when I found the work of Dr. Jolene Brighton. And it made me feel so validated and so much less crazy. And I started putting some of that research together, doing a little more research outside of her realm. And um, I started seeing results and it was completely empowering to (laughs) see those results and having taken things into my own hands. And that's actually when I started feeling relief from asthma and started seeing progress in that too. And, you know, maybe a year after that, I, I was really good to go. So that's amazing. Yeah. I think people don't realize that like, we don't, we did not have Instagram and like people weren't doing what they're doing now on Instagram. You know, like we didn't have all this information, like at our fingertips. Now people are incredibly lucky. I feel like it's a lot to sift through and it's hard to know who to trust, but there's still so many resources you know, even it's like you could go to either of our pages and learn at least a few things you could start doing right away, you know, to to start easing symptoms. That's really wild that you had such a crazy journey on the pill and had all those issues develop. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty two. I was constantly, you know, wondering, okay, why do I have prediabetes? I don't do anything crazy. And like, <laughs> that scared me too, because of my family history. So I was like, what can I do? And of course, you know, I ate low carb for a little while <laughs> thinking that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I've done vegan, low carb, all uh, oh, you can think keto. So yeah, it's, it's definitely just a big learning experience, but as you start to put more, more and more dots together, it all starts to make sense. And, um, definitely, I don't know that if I hadn't gone through what I went through on the pill, I would be in this position now, what I'm doing, which I absolutely love. Um, so I, I'm also, in a sense, grateful for what it taught me. Same here. I have very, very similar story when I came off the pill. That's really when all my research on this stuff started because I was very focused on sports nutrition. So it like completely flipped everything. I feel like a lot of women, unfortunately, have stories with the pill, which is sad, but it's also, it's important to share them. Some people do great on it. And I think that's awesome for those people, but a lot of people can really struggle. And because it's so normalized, like you said, all your friends were on it. So you thought like, can't be that bad. It is so normalized. I would even forget to tell when I would go to doctor's appointments, like I'd forget to say I was even on it. And they would ask, they're like, oh, you're on the pill. I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot. Like I forgot to even put that in my mind. It almost wasn't a prescription med is like how normal it was. So I can totally get that. So as far as I totally agree with you about the whole, there's not a lot of great info for preconception. When I think of it, I think of like when I went to like where my husband's in the military and I went to our doctor like a year ago and for one of my like typical like pap smears. And, you know, of course they freak out because I'm not taking any birth control and they're like, you're going to get pregnant. And I was like, I've been doing this for four years and we haven't gotten pregnant. So it does work. It's very effective. I was like, we want to conceive probably in the next year. And they were just like, I'm like, is 
you know, that I just was sharing that because I feel like my doctor should know in case they saw anything like with my pap smear or anything. And they're basically, they're just like, yep, just like start taking a prenatal, you know, like that's literally their advice. And if you're on the pill, the advice is don't stop taking the pill until you want to get pregnant and start a prenatal. And so what, what is wrong with that typical preconception advice? Yeah. So, you know, what I'm about to say, take it with a grain of salt because <laughs> um, it's definitely not normal to hear this uh, in con- the conventional medical space. And, you know, your doctor definitely has, usually has your best interests in mind, but they just might not be super educated on these aspects of them. And so I, I would say definitely do more research as well. Uh, happy to also mention a few resources you could look at. But um, I think one of the main issues that I have with it is that it doesn't address the concept of fetal programming. So earlier I mentioned that we can affect our child, future child's health, but also their child's health and their children's children's health. So um, the, the concept of fetal programming is a well-researched, well-established concept. And it's basically the idea that we imprint our health on our baby. So the issue here is that one, the pill itself, there's many functions in the body that it messes with. Um, It dysregulates the adrenal glands or the the adrenal adrenal hormones. Uh, It dysregulates the thyroid. Um, It um, also can increase the risk for autoimmune diseases. It affects the mental um, health of the, the woman uh, of the person taking it um, in in various ways, and that has a lot to do with the effect that it has on the hormones that it also suppresses. So, um, the way that the pill works is that it cuts off the you're you're, you're getting a uh, supplemental uh, synthetic dose of estrogen and progesterone. So the body, the way that it thinks is, okay, I'm getting all of these things. I don't need to make any more. So it'll stop producing those hormones or at least diminish the production of those at least. And so whatever, how long we've been taking the pill, our bodies slowed down the production of these important hormones, uh, which are essential to, for fertility also, and to also successfully implant and to successfully carry a baby. Um, So we're not getting any of these hormones, or at least we're getting a lot less of them. And the body, when you come off the pill, it has to reestablish that connection. So that's the first issue. And what most doctors won't tell you is that, you know, long-term birth control use is associated with subfertility is what they call it uh, for at least a year to a year and a half post-pill. So it takes a lot longer for the body to get back online. Some women, maybe not, for sure. Some women, depending on how long they were on it, you know, it could be that it comes back within the first or second month. Um, but if you've been taking the pill for two years or more, which most of us have, um, it, it could be 12 to 18 months. And that's exactly what happened to me. I got my period back when I came off the pill the second month, but I didn't start ovulating until a year and a half later. And that's one of the things that was really clear to me <laughs> when I started ovulating again, because a lot of my symptoms went away. And um, that was just a light bulb moment. I was like, oh my God, really? Uh, so 
there's that issue. A lot of us are also estrogen dominant uh, when we come off the pill because it's while it is a some of the pills are called low, you know, low, low, low estrogen. Yeah. It's supposed to be a lower dose than the extremely high doses that they came out with when the pill was first introduced into the market, which caused a lot of problems. Um, but, uh, even though it's a lower dose, it's still a pretty significantly high dose of estrogen. So we're getting synthetic estrogen, progesterone that behaves like estrogen, looks molecularly similar to, um, sorry, testosterone, actually, I believe. Is that correct? I Progestins do look similar to androgens, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm having a little brain fart. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay. So that can mess with things too. Really, it's the estrogen that's really kind of the problem because Dr. Ray Pete talks about this a lot, and he con- attributes estrogen to being the most potent anti-fertility factor. So yes, we do need estrogen, but we don't need a lot of it. <laughs> like, or there's there's a fine balance and a lot, you know, depe- depends on, of course, how you look at it and the relevance. You know, there's definitely a balance that the body needs to have and too much is not going to work in our favor. So we tend to have a lot of estrogen um, stored up uh, post uh, pill also because when we are not making progesterone, the body tends tends to accumulate estrogen anyway. So we can't really get rid of it. Progesterone is what balances estrogen in the body. And because we're not making any, because we're not ovulating, that's what the pill stops us from doing. We end up pretty estrogen dominant postpartum. Other aspects of sort of why this isn't a great idea either is because it depletes us of nutrients. So really, really important nutrients for fertility, but also a healthy baby. These include things like vitamin A, which is really important for egg health and fertility, vitamin E, which is also called the uh, fertility factor X by the people who discovered it, uh, the researchers who discovered it. Um, Vitamin C, super important for just overall structural function, but also the creation of skin in the baby, muscle in the baby, but also the stretching of your own skin. B vitamins like folate, which prevent neural tube defects, B12, which also prevents neural tube defects, really important for neurological function, baby too. Also, these two are really important for methylation. So (laughs) really, really important stuff there. Um, Zinc, selenium, uh, what else? Just a- uh, Magnesium, I think, right? Yes, magnesium, you're right. Mm -hmm. And then it also messes with uh, ceruloplasmin copper. So I talk a lot about copper on my page. You do too. Um, And that's a result of, you know, the Root Cause Protocol Institute, which is one of my favorite uh, schools I've ever done. Um, So, you know, that that aspect is really important. That's a whole other can of worms. But um, it can increase a lot of women that go on the birth control pill find that they have high copper levels. Uh, also the paragard, which is non-hormonal, but it can still affect hormones in that way because um, when we have high unbound copper, and that's what the pill is increasing, copper needs to be bound to a protein called ceruloplasmin. And that's how it uh, exerts its antioxidant effects, its amazing effects on iron regulation and all these other enzymatic functions. Uh, but the pill and the hormones that it has in it really uh, kind of separates copper from ceruloplasmin. So we have an excess of this um, metal copper, which is not necessarily terrible, um, but it really should be bound to this protein to do its job well. And so a lot of women have quote unquote copper toxicity coming off the pill. Um, 
and need to rebind all of this copper to uh, support metabolic function, fertility, et cetera. So there's so many aspects of that. Um, I could go on, but again, you know, I guess in short, the idea having knowing the and understanding the idea of uh, fetal programming and understanding that your body is probably not in the best um, state post pill that to you know not only support proper development of baby an optimal fertility of your body but also we want to put our best foot forward or at least you know some of, <laughs> most of us do um, to impact our how our pregnancy goes because nutrient deficiencies can lead to complications during pregnancy for you uh, postpartum. Uh, there's so much um, that you know <laughs> happens postpartum and that we can affect by uh, making sure we're replenishing really well, um, like PMDD, um, uh, even thyroid issues postpartum, which I see so often. And then you know the aspect of not only our babies but our future generations too. Hey, Amanda here, just giving you a quick break, hopefully a a break for your brain in the middle of this podcast episode to remind you that if you haven't gone through our free training, optimizing hormone health through mineral balance, we really do recommend starting there. And the main reason for that is because you're going to hear us say things like mineral foundation, having a solid foundation, are you putting the foundations in place, especially what we get deeper and deeper into different hormonal topics and specific imbalances in the body, the, the mineral foundation it's always going to be so essential. So if you haven't watched the free training, you can find it in our show notes or you can go to hormonehealingrd.com and it's going to be right on that front page there. But we really recommend starting there so that you can understand how is your current mineral status? How do you assess this and how to get started with all that just so you can get as much as you possibly can out of the rest of the podcast episodes. But that's it. I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Yeah. And I feel like that's, it's like, there's so much there, but when you simplify it and think about it, it's like, you're just, when you're just coming off the pill and starting a prenatal trying to conceive, it's like, you don't, you're not even taking into account all those different deficiencies that your body has in the different systems. And it's fun. I did a postpartum episode with my friend Kim and we were talking about obviously postpartum depletion and she was just emphasizing how she's like, I mean, that depletion's really starting preconception. You know, like you can definitely be obviously like you get depleted after pregnancy, but it also depends on how depleted are you going into pregnancy. Exactly. And most women statistically are nutrient deficient in their childbearing years. So we're already entering pregnancy in nutrient debt and other kinds of health debt. And so uh, that's why more and more we're seeing a lot of issues, not only in pregnancy, like so things like preeclampsia, gestational diabetes other issues, uh, but postpartum, uh, a lot of thyroid issues or autoimmune conditions that just crop up. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, so, you know, just keeping that in mind too, that I probably just statistically, I'm not, not, um, as nourished as I maybe should be to support uh, myself and baby throughout these phases and taking that time to really work on it is invaluable. And like, yeah, and like everyone's different, you know, like you had mentioned, like you've tried all the different diets and at some one point you were vegan. How long were you vegan for? About two years. I can't even picture you being vegan. (laughs) (laughs) I was very malnourished, actually. I was probably like, oh my gosh, 70 pounds. 
Oh, that's crazy. Just because of all the foods that you share and like the meat and stuff like and and it's it's like, you know how to cook it all so well. I just like can't picture that extreme. But I feel like we've all kind of been there, like especially if you're interested in health, like you tend to like try the different things that are popular, which I don't think is bad. But it's like if even if you didn't take the pill, if you're coming from that history of like maybe restrictive diets or more extreme diets and stuff or even under eating, you're going to be entering you would be entering pregnancy in a more depleted state. And I don't, I, I like am very cautious with labs. Like I love using labs and I recommend them, but I do, I do find like around that preconception time, people can get obsessive and they like, when is it okay to conceive? I'm like, we can't just be going for perfect lab numbers. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's, it's what you said is so, it makes so much sense. (laughs) I remember when I was vegan, I was using like hydrogenated vegetable oil to cook because that's what my vegan cookbook said. And now I look back on it. I'm like, oh my gosh, what was I doing? Um, But yeah, that you make a really, really great point. And that's something that I go through in the course is like how to build your timeline, things to consider. And definitely your previous diet or your current lifestyle nutrition uh, strategy is definitely one of them. Because uh, if you're on a plant-based diet, you're going to be missing a lot of really important fat-soluble nutrients that you can really only get from animal foods. And those are extremely important for fertility, but also baby's health and development. And, And you also mentioned, you know, the lab aspect. And I do find this too. I'm very cautious in the way that I approach labs as well, because I think that a lot of women, you know, there, there's a fine balance between like being ready to go. And I think that's important. Trusting your body to be ready to go. That's super important. That's really the first thing that I ask people when they are on their preconception journey. How do you feel today right now in this moment? Because that will tell you a lot. If you're not sleeping well, eating well, if you're not getting sunlight, if your digestion is really bad, if your hair is falling out already, um, if your skin has issues, how your mood it, how is your mood, how are your energy levels throughout the day? These are all pieces of information that you can use to say, okay, maybe I need to work on these things first before um, I go into pregnancy because <laughs> these things may only uh, manifest as or or become exa- as exacerbated. Excuse me. Um, so there's there's that aspect, and we definitely need to trust our body and get in tune with it to understand where it's at. Uh, but it's never that we're chasing perfection here either, and that's really important because if we are chasing perfection, we're never going to be ready ever. <laughs> so um, you have to find uh, well progress. One is really important, but uh, finding the right place for you as an individual. And your unique situation in history is also super important. There is definitely a fine balance. And I think that's important to figure out. So for, I feel like you get this question all the time. I see you do prenatal reviews all the time, which is great. And I feel like it's really helpful for people. This is probably the hardest concept for the women that I, that are in my community that I work with to accept is that most prenatal vitamins are not going to meet a hundred percent of your needs, right? We kind of, we were told this, like, we're like, oh, just start taking prenatal and you'll be fine. But most prenatal, and we kind of think it's like, oh, I'm fine. I'm taking a prenatal, right? What are some of the concerns with current prenatals on the market that you have and like any advice 
for women as far as kind of like how to how to like tease that out and find out what's going to work best for them? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> Prenatals, you know, I definitely think there's a time and a place for them. But I think what's important to remember is that they're a one size fits all solution. And you are not a, <laughs> I guess, uh, or, or I should say, everybody is so different. <laughs> and um, usually one size fits all solutions like diets themselves. There are so many concepts we can apply to that sort of concept itself too. Um, one size fits all solutions are bound to, you know, fail. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> you are a unique individual with different metabolic needs and, um, you know, different deficiencies, different excesses. So right there, there's a potential to create more imbalance, uh, just, you know, because, the prenatals don't take your unique individual needs and imbalances into account. So that's important. Uh, supplements, prenatal supplements are also not regulated by the FDA. So just keep that in mind that just because it says a prenatal doesn't necessarily mean that it's safe to consume. Uh, and this will even be on prenatal vitamin labels. Like it says, disclaimer, d- discuss with your doctor uh, or you know, do not start taking without discussing with your doctor. That's because they're just, they're not FDA regulated. Other issues that I have with prenatals, uh, they, a supplement company is releasing supplements to make money. And (laughs) with that said, if there are multiple nutrients in a supplement, the more expensive it's going to be. So the way that they cut costs and the way that they increase their bottom line, because they're not going to be just doing this from the bottom of their heart, um, is they will swap out good forms of vitamins for cheaper ones, which usually means they're going to work less well. Um, so they'll pick maybe, you know, a couple of good forms of the vitamins, but the rest will be really cheap forms like magnesium oxide or beta carotene for vitamin A, ascorbic acid for vitamin C, although you'll be hard pressed to find <laughs> I was gonna say <laughs> like zinc oxide or citrate or whatever. So take that into account. You know, not everything in there is going to work optimally in your body. Another aspect of that too, in in another angle is that a lot of these forms of vitamins are synthetic. So they're not going to work optimally in your body anyway, even if they are in great, you know, forms or whatever. Some synthetic vitamins will work very, very similarly. I will say that, but there's a lot of them that won't. And so you have the synthetic form of vitamin. Sure, it looks molecularly similar to the sort of natural form that it comes in, but it won't function or, you know, promote the same functions in the body that it, the natural form would. So the issue here is that it takes up receptor space, especially if we're getting a lot of it. And so it, it'll keep the natural form from doing its job properly. And so you're getting a bunch of synthetic stuff that's not allowing your natural forms that you're intaking through food, say, uh, to do to work optimally. Another issue is that I think going back to sort of how unregulated it is, I'm pretty sure that a supplement company can call anything a prenatal. There's not necessarily like a standard requirement for what a prenatal contains or the levels that they contain. It also doesn't take into account nutrient interactions. So some do. <laughs> well, some do kind of. <laughs> so you you might see like iron-free prenatals, um, which makes sense because calcium and iron compete for absorption, but so do other nutrients. So it's not just calcium, it's zinc as well. 
um, and others. So, you know, you're taking all of these things together and they're going to compete. So you're not going to benefit from all of them anyway. Uh, the body has to prioritize one or the other. And if you're taking them again together, <laughs> uh, it's going to be a, a problem and you're not going to be able to benefit from it. It also, you know, because these are not regulated and, you know, they don't, you can call anything a prenatal, even the ones that do have like seem really comprehensive, they're still missing key nutrients. One, you need macronutrients. <laughs> you need fat, carbs, and protein. Uh, so definitely, and I see this problem a lot, like uh, a lot of women will say, oh, I don't feel like, you know, eating, I'm just going to eat this cake for dinner. And like, I'm, I'm all for, you know, treating yourself, go for it. But they'll say, okay, I'm going to take my prenatal. So I'm good. <laughs> I'm just like, well, you might want to get some protein in there, you know, some, some real food, uh, because the prenatals, it's a supplement. And that's really what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to balance your blood sugar. And it is a supplement to what should already be a really solid foundation of a nutrient-dense diet. So um, I think a lot of women forget that. And that leads me into my <laughs> next point is that they're missing key nutrients. It takes a long time for nutrients to get sort of the acknowledgement that they deserve. And I'm sure you know this too, as a registered dietitian, you know, choline, for example, wasn't even really acknowledged until the past 20 years. And there are new nutrients that are showing how important they are for pregnancy and the baby's function, mom's function, but you're not going to see them in prenatals for decades, probably. Um, and I have a lesson in my course that specifically talks about these other important nutrients that you probably won't see in prenatals. One of them is, for example, you're seeing this a little bit more, is choline, but there are so many others and most of them are not going to have these nutrients. Um, so you got to be getting it from your diet or supplementing them. I really promote having that solid dietary foundation. And what else? I think that covers most of it. Yeah. I feel like there's so many specific, like I do, we have a whole episode on like vitamins and supplements like we recommend not to take. So I feel like people will probably, if hopefully they've listened to that episode, so they like kind of understand like the whole like ascorbic acid and iron and zinc and that kind of stuff. When you were talked about the choline thing, it made me think of folate because I feel like that's all people care about when you're pregnant. It's like no other nutrient matters. They're like, well, but what about folate? So do you think we actually absorb a lot of the folate in prenatal vitamins? And then like, is there any other nutrient that's maybe just as important and not as talked about a much? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. So we're obsessed with Foley. I don't really know. I was too young <laughs> and I'm so happy that I could still say that. I think that in the early nineties is when the recommendation to include fo uh, folic acid, and this is another differentiation we'll want to talk about, but, um, a folic acid in your, you know, prenatal supplementation strategy. And then in the late 1990s is when the United States actually started fortifying the food system with folic acid. And so what's important here is that folic acid is a synthetic man-made version of folate. And there are, I think, something like 100 to 150 kinds of folates in food. But the primary one found in food, which is 5-MTHF, is the primary one found in our bodies in the highest amount. So I think it's somewhere around 95%. Um, so that said, the difference, the, the reason these are 
the difference is important is because we can only absorb, I think, around 200 micrograms of folic acid at a time. Uh, so that becomes a problem when we take more. And we, we not only do we have the food system that's fortified, we are also taking supplements that probably have folic acid. And you will probably hear a lot of contention around this concept too, because folic acid has been probably one of the most researched versions of folate versus the natural forms itself. So because there's a lot more research studies, a lot of doctors argue that, well, folic acid is the only one, you know, this is the proven one, but (laughs) there's a lot of other supportive research. And the reason that it's important is because unmetabolized folic acid can cause a lot of problems and the consequences are still very much unknown. So a couple of issues that unmetabolized folic acid can cause, and this comes from taking too much, which is, again, very easy to, to do if you're taking uh, you know, an extra supplement with folic acid or a prenatal with folic acid, and usually they'll have it around 400 micrograms. I see like 800 and above on most prenatals now. Like It's crazy. That's an issue because I think around 50%, I can't quite remember the percentage, somewhere around 50% of us have uh, polymorphisms, genetic polymorphisms that make this conversion of folic acid to methylated folate much more difficult. So half of us already have a problem with this. (laughs) So that doesn't seem like very good odds. Uh, And the reason that's an issue is one, uh, I've spoken to many women, this is anecdotal and evidence. I I don't have any numbers that I can recall exactly, but um, a lot of women with this um, genetic, a genetic polymorphism that have been taking folic acid usually have trouble conceiving or have, are dealing with multiple miscarriages in a row. And just having changed the form of folic acid to like a methylated folate form has changed their lives completely. <laughs> like, That's amazing. Yeah. So that's huge. Um, the other, there are so many other potential issues. Um, one is uh, it can it can mask a vitamin B12 deficiency. And again, actually, vitamin B12 is also required for preventing neural tube defects, just FYI. And so if we, if we don't realize we have a vitamin B12 deficiency, that's a problem too. Um, it can also cause a functional folate deficiency. So this goes back to sort of the receptor sites and not being able to uh, utilize uh, the, the nutrients properly. Um, there's also new research, and I, I recently did uh, sort of refresh my memory on this, but there is some research coming out tying um, or, or at least making a connection to tongue ties and excess folic acid intake. Oh, that's interesting. Very interesting. What's interesting about some of the research that I read is that folic acid supplementation preconception has even a greater association with tongue ties and folic acid supplementation during pregnancy. And it's not even a large amount. It's just like around 400 micrograms, which would be exactly what you get with a prenatal or something like that. So there's definitely a lot of potential issues with folic acid supplementation. I'm not saying that it doesn't prevent neural tube defects. It definitely has been shown to. When we uh, hyper-focus on one synthetic man-made nutrient, we forget the beauty that Mother Nature provides. And I should mention that 5-MTHF can be utilized by most people that have MTHFR. So if you're getting ample folate from food, then you're really in a good spot. I should say though, if you are looking at uh, 
including a folate supplement in your prenatal or in addition to your nutrition strategy, it should be methylated and you'll want to look for L-methylfolate. So that's a really important thing to remember when looking for (laughs) you know, different forms on your pill bottle. Another question you asked was, is it the only one that prevents neural tube defects or are there others that we should be looking at? And the answer is yes, there are so many. (laughs) So, you know, things like betaine, which is not very well researched, um, zinc, uh, uh, what else? Inositol is a new one. (laughs) Um, uh, B12, choline, like these all are support methylation. And um, these are all really important for neural tube, preventing neural tube defects, plus so many other important functions in the body. So um, it's really not just about folate or folic acid. It's, It's far beyond that. And I think that when we, the issue that I have is when we do start to look singularly, we will lose an opportunity to improve our diet with all these other things and we might uh, miss miss an opportunity. I could totally see that. And I, I think I always want to highlight it because people are like, well, what about, because I have like a blog on like how to build your own prenatal because I get that question all the time because people are like, what prenatal do you like? I'm like, I wish I liked a prenatal. I wish I did. It would make my life so much easier. Will you make a prenatal? I think that'd be great. <laughs> Will Matt from Mito Life make a prenatal? Maybe. Um, you guys could team up and make it together. But it would be like a million capsules though. And then people will complain about that. I think that's like the emphasis. Like even, I don't know if you know the brand Naturello, they have like a, a completely food-based, it's all plants though. So it's like, how much are you absorbing? But they have a completely food-based prenatal, but it's like six capsules a day. So it just kind of shows you like when there are, gonna, when you, when you're getting like better forms of nutrients in there when you're doing it from food instead of synthetic, like it's going to be a lot more. And I think people don't, they don't necessarily always want that, but they still want the best option. So it's just something to like keep in mind. A prenatal is never going to meet hundred percent of your needs. You're still going to need to get things from food. That's how it's supposed to be. Um, and then, you know, when we are looking at these different types, like folic acid versus folate and like and like things like choline, like if you eat eggs, you're probably going to get enough choline, you know? So it's, it's just like, we don't have to like obsess over which brand is exactly the best. I want to cover one thing, one other thing, and then I'll let you go. And we'll, we're going to do an Instagram live and we'll, we'll go through all the other questions that we didn't get through. I told you this happened, but I feel like you provided such solid answers. And I feel like people are going to ha- probably hopefully viciously taking notes and we'll have a lot to take away. I want to talk about vitamin D. And this is one, like as a dietitian, I have a lot of other, you know, great and challenging conversations with RDs about vitamin D and especially for fertility. And during that, like, preconception prenatal time, there's a lot of people that think it's so, so important to take very high levels of vitamin D prior to and during pregnancy to prevent low levels of vitamin D. So what are your thoughts on utilizing vitamin D during this preconception time? And do you think it should be as big of a focus as a lot of people make it? That is such a huge topic. <laughs> I will I will try to break it down a little bit. I'm not, and I want to preface that even though I, I'm an RCPC, like I, I am not dogmatic about it either. So I do think I'm a full believer and full, I fully support my clients if they feel like they want to take something and that it's going to support them physiologically and emotionally. Like I will inform them of the pros and cons and they can make the decision if they want to pursue that. I 
we'll never say never, you know? So it's a huge topic. (laughs) And there are some decent studies out there that do correlate D status with better birth outcomes or less risky pregnancies. So yes, okay. But when you start to peel back the layers and understand how vitamin D operates, it gets really interesting. Um, So 25-OHD, which is storage vitamin D, is what's usually measured on lab tests. But 125-OHD, the active form, is what's really doing the work that vitamin D is so well known for. And I should also say that there are over 50 metabolites of vitamin D, so these are not even the only ones. (laughs) Um, And they all have different functions, and um, some are less active than others, but um, they all have very interesting, um, and we, we don't even know what the majority of them do, I should say. Um, so it's, it's a really, it's, I think there's a lot still to uncover there. Uh, <laughs> but, um, so moving on, no one measures 125 OHD or the active form. And the more you understand about it, the more measuring only 25 OHD, the storage form is like measuring just TSH on a thyroid panel. Or- That's a great example. I'm going to use that. <laughs> yeah. So if you you know are familiar with thy- thyroid hormone um, panels, uh, uh, speaking to your audience, I know you are. <laughs> yeah. Like TSH is just one part of the picture. You really need to know what the other markers are doing to understand what's happening. TSH is not going to give you the full picture. So the problem with the most of the vitamin D research out there is that they either omit 125-OHG, which is the active form, or they ignore the relationship (laughs) between storage, which is 25-OHG, and active 125-OHG. The ratio between the two has been shown to be very important. The lower the ratio, the less inflammation in the body. So the higher the ratio, the more inflammation the higher the association with actual illness. And I think that this, when I say that, you can look at it two two ways. You can look at it as the low 25 OHD, so the low storage form is causing the illness, or maybe the low 25 OHD and the high 125 OHD, the active form, is just a symptom. (laughs) And so there's a really interesting study by Mangan uh, that outlines how low 25 OHD is actually low, uh, you know, regardless of whether or not you're sick, healthy, whatever. So low storage D is normal. And that high 125 OHD is what you want to look out for because it's correlated with sickness and illness. In short, you could, in my opinion, it's a symptom, not necessarily a cause. This 25 OHD to 125 OHD ratio, so the storage to active ratio, is very different during pregnancy the 125 OHG, so the active form, will jump to supraphysiological levels. Number one, this is because mom's immune system has to be suppressed. And yes, if you <laughs> listen to that again, vitamin D suppresses the immune system. So that has to happen during pregnancy because otherwise, you know, you don't want mom's uh, body attacking the baby. There's a lot going on. Um, so the body has these natural mechanisms to in place to prevent that from happening. Um, two, mom's calcium absorption in her intestines increases by 100%. And that's what vitamin D helps with as well during pregnancy. So a super high ratio is really natural 
not abnormal for a pregnant woman. So I just want to clarify that in pregnancy, this high active vitamin D is very normal. The when it's not normal is outside of pregnancy because that can in, uh, um, nod to inflammation or an illness or something like that. Of course, there are special circumstances and you have to take uh, what you feel will, again, support you throughout your pregnancy. Other interesting tidbits is that I, I think that also one of the aspects that is missed when we talk about vitamin D and measuring levels is that blood is a highway for hormones and vitamin D is a hormone. And it usually gets stored in the fatty tissue and the liver. So when we're taking, we're not really supposed to have like super high levels of storage 25 OHD uh, in our blood because the body is sequestering it away to release for when it actually needs it. I think that's important too, is that the, the, the way that we measure it's still not the most accurate. <laughs> so that's kind of why I think measuring both active and storage is really important. And another interesting tidbit too is that uh, vitamin D is a hormone and levels can also be imprinted onto our children. And this is the work of Dr. Georgie Saba. He does a lot of work on or research on hormonal imprinting, nutritional imprinting. And just like our, our nutrient deficiencies can be imprinted onto our children, so can nutrient excesses. And there are definitely very interesting studies post partum on, you know, babies and their development. And, you know, there are a lot of the studies that people like to look at are, okay, how are their teeth developing? That kind of stuff. But uh, a lot of the studies that people don't mention are the ones that kind of show <laughs> the immune effects that excessive vitamin D supplementation can have on baby and how it develops. And so a lot of, there, there's some research that connects autoimmune issues with excessive vitamin D supplementation during pregnancy as well. So, you know, it's like you look one way, you see supporting evidence, you look another way, you see supporting evidence. Um, so that I think that's why it makes it so difficult. Um, and of course, you know, there are definitely two camps that are very, feel very strongly about either way. Um, I just kind of like to look at how it operates in the body. And just from having looked at um, so many people's Fomonti iron panels, which is the test that you um, can take to measure your iron metabolism, overall metabolic function. It's part of, you know, in conjunction with our hair tissue mineral analysis, it's a really great uh, panel. You get to see your A and D and how it affects everything else, all these other markers and minerals as well. And the lab tests speak for themselves. Like I always see low retinol, high iron, high unbound copper, low ceruloplasmin, or maybe high ceruloplasmin, <laughs> depleted potassium. It's uh, definitely interesting. Do I think that there are extenuating circumstances? Of course, there are people with genetic mutations that have to take vitamin D, especially there's really interesting research on men that have this genetic mutation. Taking vitamin D supports their testosterone levels, but it's those people that have the genetic mutation. And that takes some sussing out to do with your doctor based on your symptoms. But do I think vitamin D is necessary for everyone? Probably not. I think also the uh, level two that you take it. So I think um, Hector DeLuca, the father of vitamin D, he always said never more than 2000 IU because uh, America is such a calcium rich, consumes such a calcium rich diet. Um, what's interesting too, is that there are other practitioners that say like, you have to take vitamin D during pregnancy to support these super physiological 
rise during pregnancy. But if you look at those studies, it's not really making a difference at all. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of uh, missing pieces. And so these assumptions and recommendations are also being made on like inaccurate information or not having the whole picture. And I don't know if we ever will have the whole picture, but that that's why I kind of take a neutral, cautious stance on it. I like that. I think it's good to have that balance. Like I think that whole, like how Hector DeLuca, it's like, okay, if if the person that is really coming up with this whole vitamin D piece says no more than 2000 I use, I don't think that's a bad rule to follow, you know? And, and, I, and then people are like, but then my levels aren't changing, but there, there's so many other things that impact our vitamin D status. It's important to look at that. And I think that's the hard concept that people are like, but my vitamin D is low and my doctor's on me to take it. I have a lot of clients that are like, I took it and I didn't feel good, which is very interesting. Not everyone has made that connection, but I've heard it more than I was expecting. I took vitamin D for years. I never really noticed a difference. I feel like it depends on the person and you don't, I don't necessarily think everyone, like one of the critical pieces of feedback I often get is like, not everyone can afford lab testing, which I totally understand. But then it's like, then go with a more cautious dose. If it's something that you really, really, really are, if it's stressing you out, I'm like, just do it. Like it, it it's not worth it for you to be like, every day wondering like if you're doing the right thing for yourself and your baby. I would say like, if it's stressing you out, just take a conservative dose of it. I don't think it's going to end everything, but if you're taking it for a specific reason, like to prevent something, taking just the vitamin D might not actually do that. Yeah. Yeah. And you made a great point too. There's this whole other aspect of like vitamin D doesn't operate alone. It has so many other co-factors and partners and uh, vitamin A is really important. And that ratio is super important to support the ability for the body to utilize vitamin D, magnesium, et cetera. So yeah, there's just so much to unpack there. But, um, you know, I'm very much like you, I think, taking a reasonable approach. And um, if you really feel like you need it and it's going to make the world of a difference for you, then you've called to it, then try it. Yeah. And, and that's it's like it's important to experiment, you know, like even the recommendations, and the things that I share in this podcast and on my Instagram. And obviously you share a ton of information on your Instagram. It's like even inside my courses, it's still like you you have to take it in, experiment and find what works for you. It's not everything is not meant to be like the end all be all. Right. And it's not a one size solution. We can wrap this up. I appreciate you taking the time to do this so much. We're going to do an Instagram live and answer the rest of the questions. So people, obviously, I mentioned your Instagram at an Functional Nutrition. People can find you there. And then you do have your Conscious Conception course. So do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Thanks so much for asking. I uh, recently birthed a course and <laughs> it was in partnership with my dear friend, Dr. Britt Harmon, and she's a pelvic floor uh, specialist. And so we were both on our preconception journeys. I still am. Um, I'm just taking my time <laughs> doing uh, uh, some fun stuff has cropped up with some lab tests that I ran for myself. So I want to work on that a little bit more before I give it a real go. But I was helping her with her preconception journey nutritionally. And we've just been friends for a long time and just have found ourselves in corners and parties just like nerding out on <laughs> preconception stuff. So we put our heads together and we really wanted to create this resource for women that helps them, helps guide them through the journey of preconception and empower them with the information that they need to feel really confident moving forward in this beautiful time period of their lives um, and how much of a difference it can make. And, you know, 
Of course, this course is not sort of (laughs) conscious conception. You know, I think all conception is beautiful. And, you know, sometimes conception is a surprise and that's amazing. But this course is for women who really want to take some time to put their best foot forward and want to learn about their bodies, get in tune with it. There's a whole module on cycles, working through regular cycles, how to track your cycle with what contraceptives without, building your pregnancy timeline, lab tests to think about how to advocate for yourself, all the nutrition information, supplement information, pelvic floor health, lifestyle, environment, relationships, self-care, all that stuff. So it's it's been a labor of love. We're so happy to have this resource in the world. We, we hope that it helps a lot of women. I think it will. I have a lot of clients and people in my membership that purchased it. And I think a, a big draw was they're, they're like, I don't have access to a pelvic floor PT. And I'm like, get the course then, you know, like there's no way that it's not going to be helpful. And then it it is helpful to, I, I love that you have the timeline in there. And we're going to talk about that on the Instagram live. I want to go into that more. You can use it again, you know, <laughs> if you want to conceive again, it's like, it, I love when you have a resource that you can always go back to. Yeah. And hopefully that'll be the case for everyone. And um, we have some pregnancies in the group already, which is awesome. Oh, so <laughs> that's so cool. Can't wait to to see these little conscious conception babies. <laughs> Seriously, and I love the name. So I'm gonna link uh, Lauren's course in the show notes, but you can also you can find it by the link in your bio as well on Instagram. I'm guessing. Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. So definitely go check that out. Thank you so much for being here and talking about this. There's a lot that we did not get a chance to cover, but we're going to have Lauren back on and we'll dig in more. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Amanda. It was really, really fun. Thank you for listening to the Are You Menstrual podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and sharing the podcast with someone you think it will help. If you are new here, we can't recommend enough to start with our mineral imbalance quiz. This is going to give you an idea if you are at low, moderate, or high risk for mineral imbalances. And then of course, make sure you follow us on Instagram at hormone healing RD and consider signing up for our newsletter. If you like nerding out and you are just loving these podcasts, but maybe you're a little bit more visual and you want to see things too, we go into a ton of detail in our weekly newsletter. So we would love to have you join us there. All right. Thank you. And we will see you in the next episode.